The interchange is supported by Five Works, a turnkey customer engagement platform. Utilities, if you're looking to go beyond the meter to engage your customers on a deeper level and drive them toward desired outcomes, you're looking for Five Works. Five Works personalizes digital communications and drives customer behavior at scale by using behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning technology to help you market to a customer of one. That's how you deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. To see how Five Works can help your program succeed, visit fiveworks.com/theinterchange. That's Five Works with an X. fiveworks.com/theinterchange, or follow the link on the podcast page. This is The Interchange, conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome. This week, beyond the politics of limits to the politics of possibility. Shale Khan and I talk with Alex Trembeth, the communications director for the Breakthrough Institute, about smashing our conventional beliefs around how to protect the planet. To the Breakthrough Institute, it means more technology, more economic growth, and counterintuitively more energy use, not just setting limits. If you've hung around energy circles for any amount of time, you know the Breakthrough Institute. It has a reputation for being contrarian and, in the past, downright antagonistic to conventional ways of thinking about environmentalism, clean energy, and climate change. In fact, the organization was spawned from an idea that traditional environmentalists had it all wrong. So at this point, I know there are people out there who are already putting their intellectual guard up. You know, at Green Tech Media, if we feature any opinion from the Breakthrough Institute on the site, we're sure to get negative tweets and responses or sometimes downright conspiratorial commentary about why we're giving them a voice because they've riled a lot of people up over the last decade. But please, if you're already going into this conversation with your guard up, I ask you to drop it. Just try. Check your baggage at the door. The whole purpose of this podcast is to get beyond the tribal warfare on Twitter and get into what the Breakthrough Institute actually believes, to stop throwing rocks, or, you know, I could just go on and on. Whatever kind of conflict metaphor you want to use, let's stop it. In this episode, we're going to talk with Alex about where the group stands on renewables, nuclear, evidence-based climate policy, and why human ingenuity is the best tool to save the planet. We'll define eco-modernism as well, and we'll spend some time on tribalism itself and how to get beyond it. This conversation with Alex Trembeth was a long time coming, and I think you'll hear in this interview that the Breakthrough Institute is striking a different tone these days, staying firm in its core principles, but in a less combative way. I enjoyed the conversation thoroughly, so let's get into it. I started out asking Alex if he thinks of himself as a contrarian. That's a good question. I don't for for a few reasons. Uh, the first being, I don't think anyone thinks of themselves as a contrarian, sort of purely I, I try and go where the evidence takes me, not where, not the opposite of where the evidence takes everybody else. Um, I, just, I don't think anyone really thinks of themselves uh, purely as a contrarian. Um, but also, uh, you know, in terms of breakthrough, in terms of uh, environmental issues, in terms of the way that eco-modernists look at the world, I think the environmental winds are sort of shifting in in our or, or that direction in a bunch of ways. You think about nuclear energy, you think about industrial scale agriculture and biotech, you think about cities and increased density, think about sort of general technology-based approaches to solving environmental problems. I, I think that it's maybe less contrarian as an outlook than it used to be. 
and also sort of both substantively and strategically, we at Breakthrough are are trying to be sort of less deconstructive of conventional environmental uh, approaches and more sort of proactively building a positive environmental paradigm that we call eco-modernism. Other people call eco-pragmatism. Other people don't call it anything. But one that is, again, uh, it's proactive. It's optimistic. It's positive. It is inc- inclusive of, of different perspectives. Um, and uh, and sort of fundamentally, it's it's about how technology and modernization can can help solve environmental problems. Yeah, let's explore that a little bit more. Tell me what eco-modernism is exactly i mean traditional environmentalism we can we can talk about this too but i think traditional environmentalism has been about as as breakthrough has called them the politics of limits Mm -hmm. and it's this idea that you know humans are the problem so we need to limit what humans do to the planet and and this eco-modernism approach and please um you know course correct me if i'm wrong it's it's this idea that technology implementation, human ingenuity, and greater economic growth is actually the way we solve environmental problems. Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly right. If you go back into the sort of long history of the Breakthrough Institute, one of the earliest critiques of environmentalism, which I still think rings true, and I think is a valid critique of conventional environmentalism, is that it is about uh, limits on human activity, often on human creativity. It is a limit on technology, a limit on consumption, and ultimately, as you said, a politics of limits, which is both, I think, impractical and not inspiring. So the sort of founding idea of the Breakthrough Institute and one of the founding ideas of eco-modernism was to reject the politics of limits and embrace a politics of possibility. And that means um, it means embracing technology, especially sort of uh, cleaner, more innovative and environmentally friendly technologies. It means imagining a future that is good for both humans and nature and trying to um, trying to imagine and increasingly research and understand the technological development uh, d- developmental pathways that will make that possible how does that play out specifically in the context of climate change where i mean the whole you know there, there's sort of no question i assume you agree that what you need to do in order to combat climate change is set limits in this case on greenhouse gas emissions. So is it just how you go about achieving those limitations that you think is a different view from the traditional environmentalist, or do you actually disagree with the notion that like we need to impose limits on greenhouse gas emissions? I think it depends on what you mean by set or impose limits. I don't think that the evidence is in favor of a of the efficacy of any formally set or imposed limit. If you look at uh, if you look at things like Kyoto, if you look at things l- like climate targets in Germany uh, that that were were recently postponed, the actual sort of formal legal limits we set on emissions have tended to be a combination of toothless or ultimately discarded, whereas you can actually achieve emissions reductions or input whatever environmental goal you have. You can actually achieve environmental goals without setting hard targets and timetables. This was actually one of the very first uh, contributions of the Breakthrough Institute that w- is that it isn't the target or the timetable or the cap or the limit or the goal itself that achieves that goal, but it is the tools that 
are required and able to achieve those to achieve those goals. So we don't have to we don't have to get together as a global community and say that emissions need to be zeroed out completely by 2050 in order to make progress towards doing that. We're already reducing emissions in a lot of countries around the world, including the United States. And emissions caps or goals or limits had nothing to do with the emissions reductions in the United States broadly over the over the last decade or so, which was mostly uh, natural gas replacing coal, uh, people driving less, um, and also a, a significant contribu- contribution from renewables, particularly wind energy. So what about the case of the Paris Climate Accords then? Presumably, so that's, a, that's the global community coming together and imposing limits or you know, restrictions on greenhouse gas emissions self-imposed. It, it qualifies, I think, as what you said before, it's somewhat toothless and probably insufficient by most climate scientist measures. And so I guess the presumption would be then that you think that there would be a different path that the global community could take, which would achieve more than Paris would on its own. If that's true, like, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I mean, frankly, I'm mostly happy with the Paris Agreement itself. Some of the rhetoric around the Paris Agreement, including from the parties that negotiated, it gets a, gets a little uh, hyperbolic sometimes. But we have now finally set limits on ourselves that we will hit when the sort of fruit of the of the agreement itself that is a lot more compelling is that it is not some global number that everyone has to agree to reach an aggregate, but it is these in internally inter- internationally determined contributions. Um, so every country gets to set its own target, which I think is a much more realistic and pragmatic approach. It is in its language and in its actual uh, sort of effort and goals, very technology based. It tries to describe national targets for for each country that are based upon its developmental and technological trajectories. Um, so I, I think it, it is a sort of a much more pragmatic and actually sort of bottom up as opposed to top down global platform, glo- global framework than, than what came before it. That said, a lot of the rhetoric around it does tilt towards we finally have a global community committed to limiting carbon emissions. And I, I think I think a lot of that is is mostly literally just that rhetoric. And it's mostly fine because the actual meat of the of the accord is really a, sort of a lot more bottom, bottom up and pragmatic than that. Um, so I, I don't necessarily see a, a huge need to spend years or decades improving on it and creating a new global framework when the work that we acknowledge at Paris needs to be done is mostly going to be at the national and, and often sort of multinational, but not usually sort of global level. Um, and it's mostly going to be about what are the what are the technological choices that we have available to us today and how do we expand and improve those technological choices? Right. The, the focus on the Paris Climate Agreement is um, perhaps a little bit too narrow as I interpret the politics of limits. To me, the politics of limits was about traditional environmentalists always saying no to things and seeing economic growth as as um, a negative consequence. And when the death of environmentalism, the essay that was kind of the foundation for the founding of the Breakthrough Institute was published in 2004, and in 2007, the book Breakthrough, The Death of Environmentalism to the Politics of Possibility was published. It called out traditional environmentalism for um, basically seeing humans as just the problem. 
um, and and to to set and to really just be focused on setting limits for things rather than looking at the broader impact of economic growth on people's relationship to the environment. So it really isn't about just one particular framework. It's about saying, no, we should be saying yes to a lot of things. And the knock-on effect of greater economic growth and human empowerment is that people care more about the environment. They move into cities and find greater economic opportunity and have a more limited impact on the land. Um, They create more opportunities for themselves so they're not just burning firewood and stripping forests, um, you name it, there are a lot of impacts. And so um, this is kind of a framework that that angered a lot of traditional environmentalists. Um, Is one of the reasons that it angered a lot of environmentalists, though, that it presented them as sort of a straw man with a a unified voice that didn't really reflect their views? I mean, I'm not super embedded within that world, so I don't I don't really know that I have the answer to this, but but I certainly haven't run across anybody in my travels in this energy and climate world who like truly believes that humans are are nothing but the problem. I, I'm sure they're out there, but I wonder whether they're sort of a somewhat fringe community. And most of the environmentalists out there, people who would call themselves environmentalists, you know, agree with the notion that technology is is going to go a long way toward helping us solve these problems and that, you know, there's a more complex relationship between humans and the environment than than is presented in what you just described, Stephen. For sure. That's a very simplistic way of of characterizing it. Um, and Alex, please feel free to jump in here. But I also think that that world shale has changed in the last decade because the technological solutions have been uh, has have evolved. And in 2004, when the death of environmentalism came out, um, really, the environmental movement was ba- based around setting limits around saying no to things, there just weren't the tech kind of technological options for reducing carbon emissions and other pollutants that we have today. Um, Alex, your thoughts on shales interpretation of my characterization, and how things have changed? Yeah, I think you're both right. Uh, Shale, I I think if you look around today at environmental advocacy, you see exactly what you describe, which is it is more optimistic. Um, It is technologically inclusive, particularly of technologies like solar and wind. Um, and it's, it's sort of less reliant on the politics of limits than it used to be. But as, as Stephen says, you go back 10 years to when the book was written or 14 years to when, uh, the death or environmentalism essay was written. Uh, it, it was a lot different and, and it's, it's funny now because the sort of fundamental premises of the essay and then the book were ideas like rules and regulations are not nearly sufficient to address environmental problems like climate change or biodiversity loss. We need a... A, a more optimistic, more proactive uh, policy platform and, and practice platform to address those much more difficult problems. It was about how a politics of limits is worse than a politics of possibility, both practically and in terms of inspiring action and inspiring coalitions. And it was uh, about a technology-based approach to environmental problems. The technology-based approach espoused in breakthrough and in the early days of the breakthrough institute was really built on solar wind and electric vehicles and it was about a respect for developmental priorities in in emerging economies that were not necessarily climate or environment focused you still have at least half the planet 
aiming to uh, aiming to achieve something like a modern life, whether that means a, a life like an American leads or a life like a European leads or a, a life like a person in Korea or Japan leads. Um, so that, that was sort of the, the fundamental uh, foundation of, of Breakthrough the Book and Breakthrough and the Breakthrough Institute. And none of that sounds all that controversial today. I think, again, because the, the tide is turning in, in favor of these sort of clearly effective technological approaches to environmental problems. So it, it, it was controversial at the time. And Shale, you may be right that some of that came from grouping environmentalists together in, in this sort of monolithic uh, label, environmentalists. And that remains a problem from us and from, and from a lot of other people. But I do think it, it's fair to describe conventional environmentalism from the from the fifties and sixties on throughout uh, the the intervening half century, as as mostly focused on uh, on consuming less, on sort of living more lightly, on uh, being anti technology, very often anti growth, anti modernization, and I just don't think it's practical um, anymore. And I, I think it's the source of a lot of cognitive dissonance among environmentalists. You know, between that on the one hand and enthusiasm now for technological solutions like solar and electric vehicles and cities on the other hand. So I think that, it's, you know, since those ideas really came to the front in the last decade or so, there has been a lot of really productive cognitive dissonance among environmentalists and uh, causing a, a lot of a, a lot of shifting attitudes about technology and about growth. But I do think that that broadly, on average, Stephen, um, your description of environmentalism was true, remains partially true, and explains a lot of the resistance to to those ideas over the years. And, and I just want to be clear, like, we owe a lot to the four or five decades of environmental activists in this country Absolutely. for, you know, getting regulations passed that give us clean air and clean water. I mean, the, we wouldn't be where we are today without those movements, but we're at a point today where the technological evolution and the enormity of the global challenges that we face are so vastly different from the ones that were faced locally, you know, for three, four, five decades ago. Um, I will say, though, you know, th this is a positive message in the way that we're talking about it. But when the death of environmentalism and later the Breakthrough book came out, and then as Breakthrough evolved, it pissed a lot of people off and people did feel threatened in the environmental community. They felt like maybe you were cr overly criticizing them or nagging them. Um, why did they, you get that reaction? And has your approach to engaging that community changed over time? Yeah, that's another great question. That was a a very common reaction to our work. I was not there in the very early days of the Breakthrough Institute, which was founded in 2008. I joined in 2011. But that has re remained uh, a core criticism and reaction to our work. And that's that's very fair to point out. I think at times it has been more and less fair a reaction to our work. You know, sort of fundamentally, the Breakthrough Institute, especially in the in the early days, was about investigating, questioning, and deconstructing conventional assumptions and approaches to environmental problems. So first, really, that meant looking at how at the attempt to apply conventional environmental policies like protected areas or like global treaties or things like the Clean Water Act to climate change, to biodiversity loss, to nitrogen runoff which we argued were fundamentally different environmental problems that you had to have a more proactive, more technology-based approach. And that 
pissed a lot of environmentalists off. Not all of them. And, and again, they're not all the same group of people. Um, as, as time went on, we looked at, we, we looked pretty critically at tools like emissions pricing, which it was and remains a potential powerful tool for reducing emissions, but doesn't, we think, get to the heart of the problem of climate change in that it doesn't actually speak to the massive technological paradigm shift that we need to take place at every level of the economy all around the world. We took a hard look at energy efficiency, which had for really decades been touted as this free lunch solution to environmental problems and, and, and energy overconsumption. Um, allegedly, you could just become a lot more efficient and use a lot less energy, and, and that would reduce your environmental impact. And we wrote a lot about this phenomenon called the rebound effect, which is, you know, broadly, it's very complicated, but broadly, it's when energy when your energy consumption becomes more efficient, it becomes more productive, energy services become cheaper, and you might use more of them, you might use a lot more of them, and that might saturate over time. But that was another example of us trying to deconstruct and better understand the foundations of environmental thinking and environmental frameworks and environmental policymaking. Um, and in talking about those, I, I the, uh, about those critiques that we had about our critiques of carbon pricing or, or the Waxman Markey cap and trade bill, or uh, about our critiques uh, of the enthusiasm around energy efficiency, later our our critiques of solar and wind as, uh, as sufficient to the challenge of deep decarbonization. At times, when we're talking about those, I think you could rightly accuse us of being a little obnoxious, uh, maybe maybe a little shrill sometimes. Um, and I'm sure if you scrolled through my clips or my Twitter feed, you would find plenty of examples of the, the kind of behavior that we have now tried to sort of move past. Uh, so to your to your question, Stephen, um, really since a little before the publication of an eco-modernist manifesto a few years ago, we had gotten kind of tired around here of simply deconstructing environmentalism and frankly, um, you know, sort of throwing rocks at it when we had looked around and found all of these much more compelling solutions like nuclear energy, like industrial agriculture, you know, like cities, like biotechnology. And we had increasingly picked up some fellow travelers and some allies in, uh, in activism and in academics who, you know, had a similar worldview to the one we did, all of whom got together or a bunch of whom got together and published an eco-modernist manifesto that begat now several years of trying to be uh, sort of a lot less critical and a lot more proactive in our engagement and in our sort of ideation and, uh, and, and, and trying to build an environmentalism that recognizes the hu the human side of the world, the potential of technological solutions, as opposed to just deconstructing old environmental paradigms. Yeah, my perception of this from the outside, and forgive the metaphor because you're going to hate it, but um, it, you know, it felt to me for, for years like the Breakthrough Institute's rhetoric looked, it was is sort of like the Tea Party movement in the US, which was to say like, you know, the Tea Party and the Republican Party they were aiming broadly toward the same goal. Um, they might've had some policy differences and so on, but you know, they're on the same side of the coin basically. Um, but the tea party emerged basically to fight the traditional Republican party. And because they had a different set of views about how to get 
to, to go about achieving their means. And I think the criticism about the Breakthrough Institute in its earlier years, and I agree, at least from what I've seen, that like it, it's changed in the past few years. But I think, as you said, like a lot of what was happening was it felt like um, Breakthrough would sort of pop up largely to throw rocks at traditional environmentalism, as opposed to, you know, focusing primarily on presenting its positive vision of the future. And so it's, it's one thing to say, here's my vision of the, the best way to craft policies to support biodiversity or climate change mitigation. It's another thing to focus on, here's why everybody else is wrong about it. And I think that's what rubbed everybody the wrong way, because, you know, I, I think you would agree that, um, for the most part, you the environmental community and Breakthrough Institute want largely the same things ultimately, but it's a manner of sort of how you go about um, positioning how you think we should get there. Yeah. And, and Stephen, you and I have a, a very sort of personal example of that exact kind of shift, um, having realized uh, after disagreeing a bunch sort of in public several years ago that we really are fellow travelers and, and do have many of the same goals. To this day, you and I might take a sort of different tack on uh, on, on any given issue set. Um, but literally the, the, the sort of switch between uh, throwing a rock in one direction or the other or arguing angrily with someone who prefers nuclear or someone who prefers wind and solar or someone who prefers GMOs or whatever, often the, the only shift that's required in marching to the same tune is having a pleasant conversation or, or actually sort of acknowledging the differences in worldview or, or as we call it around here, achieving disagreement, figuring out what you actually do disagree about and then opening up more productive conversation about wh what you still do agree about. And it's that type of sort of strategic and rhetorical work that we've tried to do a lot more in the last several years. And that I, I think is, is, is successful. I, I, I think that, um, we are sort of having more interesting and productive conversations with, quote unquote, the old guard of environmentalism, whether that's in conservation or in decarbonization or whatever. And uh, and, and I, I do think that it is uh, is a successful shift uh, so far. That's right. You and I were on the, the opposite side of the coin for a little bit. Uh, in 2012, I went to Climate Progress, which is a a news site based out of Think Progress at the Center for American Progress. And I was reporting on climate politics and climate science for a long time. And when I got in there as an institution, it was almost as if the Breakthrough Institute during those years was seen as um, as much of, uh, I don't want to use the word enemy, because that use, word was never used, but like... Um, they were definitely positioning themselves as much against the Breakthrough Institute as against maybe the Cato Institute or the Heritage Foundation. And that was the, the framework with which I was writing for a long time and I think felt kind of forced into taking a stance on issues. And after I left Climate Progress and moved over to GTM and got more into um, traditional business-to-business -business journalism and started thinking more holistically about this energy transition and um, not, you know, not just about day-to-day -day politics or political wins, I, I took a step back and said, I don't want to be the type of person who's shutting off ideas from across the spectrum given the enormity of this climate challenge and the environmental issues that we face. Like this, the day that I start shutting people out 
no matter what kind of ideas they are, uh, is the day that I start feeling pretty ashamed about myself. And so I actually went back and said, hey, you know, we've had a number of public spats. We've disagreed on a lot. I feel like we've really uh, positioned ourselves against each other. Like, let's, uh, I think that there's probably a lot more that we can agree on here. And my sense is that there's a lot of people out there who feel that same way, but the environment that we're in now that's been heightened over the last five or six years since in this social media environment really makes it feel like there's a lot more that we disagree on than agree on. Yeah, so much so that it's worth pointing out, I, on this program so far, I've been talking about my and Breakthrough's efforts to bridge the divide more often, to be more proactive, to be more inclusive, and to be maybe less bomb-throwing at conventional environmentalism and more trying to build bridges. I was not the one who reached out to you, Stephen. It was the opposite direction. So, uh, so uh, you know, it, it's it's something that I can sort of sit here and talk about a lot and and say that, you know, we, we really want to be having these open honest conversations with each other and that we want to get past the tribalism. We want to get past the, the spats, but you know, for my, for myself, uh, even as I try really hard to do it, it can be very difficult to do it. Um, and, and I I am immensely appreciative of the examples in my life where somebody that I have argued with online or in person or whatever, um, who ultimately I do share a pretty common worldview with reaches out to me, even at the times when I'm sort of too stubborn to reach out to them. The interchange is brought to you by FiveWorks. Times, they are a changing for utilities. In this digital age, the world expects more. And in the utility space, that means beyond meter data. Not only are you being asked to better engage and service your customers, but to anticipate their changing expectations and preferences. So what does it mean to truly know your customers? And can you leverage your data and the rising standards for customer engagement to benefit your business? With FiveWorks, absolutely you can. FiveWorks personalizes communication and drives customer action at scale through behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning, enabling you to deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. Go to fiveworks.com slash the interchange for more. That's fiveworks with an X fiveworks.com slash the interchange or follow the link on the podcast page to begin engaging the customer of one. So I want to table this conversation about tribalism because there may be some more we can unpack here toward the end of the show. But let's get into some areas where there's a lot of debate, some controversy, some debates on Twitter, and um, and see if we can, you know, figure out where things stand with regard to the, the Breakthrough Institute's stance. So, so nuclear is obviously a big piece of what you guys are um, in favor of on the energy side and climate side. I mean, you see this as a central tool in, um, you know, in, in, in clean industrialization and in economic growth and in lowering carbon emissions. How did you stumble on nuclear as a climate solution? Because as you mentioned earlier, it was solar and wind and EVs that you were initially focused on, and then it became nuclear. How'd that shift take place? Yeah, that's a great question. And as you say, when the Breakthrough Institute was founded about a decade ago, nuclear was sort of part of our vision of what the future might look like. But We included it sort of pro forma. We didn't know a lot about nuclear. We 
and I'm, I'm using we to refer to both myself and people who came before me at the Breakthrough Institute, hadn't thought a lot about nuclear. We had many of us grown up sort of just default anti-nuclear. So the founding vision of the Breakthrough Institute for climate change was one built almost entirely on renewable energy, on solar and wind and electric vehicles. And we had some friends of ours uh, taking our sort of technological approach to climate change seriously, but asking us, why aren't you guys talking about nuclear energy more? If you guys are serious about the zero carbon energy thing, then you have to understand that nuclear has all of these capabilities and all this potential that solar and wind just don't offer. And, you know, we've been hearing that, but remained, you know, much stronger advocates of solar and wind than you might classify us as today. And it was the Fukushima incident that actually caused really uh, Michael and Ted and Jesse Jenkins, who were all at the Breakthrough Institute at the time, to ask themselves, okay, Fukushima happened. Germany is getting rid of its nuclear fleet. Japan is shutting their nuclear power plants off. We really need to understand is this the right thing to do? What role does nuclear have in the future? And that kicked off a really multi-year investigation into the technologies, into the history of nuclear power, into the, the speed at which nuclear has decarbonized energy systems in places like France and Switzerland, and also the challenges that nuclear energy has had in places like the United States. Um, both technologically and politically. And, you know, it's been uh, the better part of a decade since that initial investigation started. And we have sort of bobbed and weaved around what nuclear technologies we think are most promising about what level of nuclear deployment is more appropriate and what, uh, and relatedly what level of solar and wind deployment is more appropriate what type of sort of industrial strategy there should be for nuclear energy, whether it should be a sort of 1970s French-style state-directed deployment of conventional light water reactors or something that we are leaning much more towards today, uh, much bigger investment in advanced nuclear reactors that can be smaller uh, and oftentimes a lot smaller that can be manufactured on assembly lines that can serve a lot of uh, energy services besides just electricity, things like combined heat and power and water desalination and things like that. So, you know, that's sort of the history of breakthrough and nuclear energy in a, in a nutshell. And that caused us to look at things like solar and wind in, in a whole bunch of different and often very critical new lights. Our sort of stance towards different types of nuclear, our stance towards renewables in that last decade or so has has shifted a lot in, in, in both directions. Um, and it, it is what it is today. And I can talk more about that. But that is that is really what started it, is is Fukushima and Germany and Japan in, in 2010 and 2011. And uh, a really clear need for us to better understand the technology. So let's hear it directly then before we start putting words in your mouth. How would you classify your or the Breakthrough Institute's current stance toward nuclear and then toward wind and solar? I think at, at Breakthrough, we have, have thought a lot about the many different nuclear reactor technologies and types of power plants built in the United States and around the world. And where we have come out is that the age of the conventional one gigawatt light water reactor is over almost everywhere in the world. It's definitely over the United States, where over the past decade, with federal policy, we have tried to build the conventional big one gigawatt light water reactors. And many of them will get built. Some of them look like they won't. But 
huge cost overruns, huge delays. It's, you know, it's, it's a problem of American infrastructure in general, but we're clearly not able to quickly and cheaply build these huge light water reactors, even if once they're up and running, they produce electricity 100% of the time, 24-7 and pretty cheaply. So where that leads us is that for there to be an actual nuclear renaissance in the 21st century, we're going to need new reactors. We're going to need new types of industrial organization. We're going to need new business models. We're going to need new customers. It's not just going to be sort of baseload power demand, but it's going to be things like uh, like remote demand for electricity in places like rural Alaska and maybe places like sub-Saharan Africa. It's going to be demand for not just electricity, but demand for things for things like process heat, uh, both for combined heat and power and maybe for industrial applications, it's going to be for things like desalination. That said, whenever we're sort of writing about it or talking about it, you can't go to Google Images and and find a picture of an advanced reactor for the most part because they don't exist yet. Um, you can find a picture of a cooling tower or, uh, or conventional nuclear power plant, but uh, the technologies that we think the world will rely on for deep decarbonization this century in in most cases and in most ways don't exist yet. And that requires a lot of public and private investment in next generation nuclear. But we think it's necessary. Um, We haven't probably gone so far as some of our allies in the direction of nuclear to the point where we shrug off the potential of renewable energy technologies like solar and wind completely. In fact, we think that they have a pretty large contribution to make to decarbonization in most countries around the world. Um, but we are not at all confident that they can get us all the way there if you define if you define there as 100% zero carbon energy. And we are you know, pretty strongly questioning whether they can whether solar and wind can really easily get us to even something like 50% decarbonization, um, where the re- remaining 50% would be some form of dispatchable power, whether it's nuclear or fossil fuels with or without carbon capture or hydroelectric or, or whatever. 50% wind and solar on a grid would be tremendous. It would be one of the defining achievements in all of human history. Um, and f- most countries rely on a, a broad mix of energy technologies. So, you know, in the United States, no one technology pr- provides 50% of our electricity today. 50% wind and solar would be a huge accomplishment and yet leave us 50% a- away from the goal, which is as close to zero carbon as possible. So that is why we start thinking about tech, uh, about technologies like nuclear and why we start thinking about how to create and design and deploy new reactors that can actually get built and deployed uh, on time and under under budget, unlike the reactors that we see being built today. So I think you just clearly articulated why you think nuclear is important, but it's also helpful to continue to unpack the challenges for nuclear. So I'm sure a lot of people will be nodding, nodding along, people who in theory could be supportive of nuclear, particularly small modular reactors and this whole host of new technologies that are emerging. But if we truly are going to deal with the climate crisis, you're looking at technology development, scaling, and regulatory issues that are a decade, if not more. And, you know, a decade is a long time when we look at the uh, climate crisis that is unfolding. Um, Meanwhile, you know, you mentioned the challenges of traditional light water reactors. Uh, Almost everybody agrees that, you know, nuclear industry is facing some pretty 
serious challenges and it's almost impossible for a new, well, maybe not impossible, but it's very difficult for a new nuclear reactor to compete with uh, distributed resources or maybe not distributed resources, but conventional utility scale renewables and battery storage potentially. So there's an emerging mix of renewables that are competitive, albeit they don't they don't offer the same quality of energy uh, as a nuclear power plant. So there's you know there's a debate around the the type of energy that you want feeding the system. But uh, you know the, the 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 scope of the challenge is great in scaling these new technologies, and we just don't seem and we have this emerging class of resources that's competitive with nuclear. How are you grappling with those with those challenges? Well, it's to try, first of all, to be honest about them and agree with you that if we're talking about next generation nuclear technologies, we're not talking about deploying a bunch of nuclear power plants in the next decade. Maybe we'll see a few demonstration reactors, maybe early commercialization of advanced reactors and small modular reactors. And we really hope that that's the case. And we're, and we're trying with our allies to push towards that type of public and private investment in, in advanced nuclear. Um, but on the scale and the time frame of the climate challenge, you're right, that that, uh, that is moving slower than we would like in terms of deploying zero carbon energy technologies. Why it's important and essential, we think, is that w- you know while we're sort of developing and demonstrating and deploying early generation n- advanced nuclear technologies, we will be deploying solar and wind, we will be deploying EVs, but we don't think those technologies are going to get you all the way there in many countries around the world due to a combination of sort of saturation on the grid and expiration of subsidies and things like that. You're seeing a saturation of solar and wind deployment that I think is going to be pretty systemic and pretty endemic to this, this sort of deployment curve of those technologies as, as you deploy more solar that generates electricity really concentrated in the middle of the day, um, then your incentive for uh, building more and more um, just goes down as, as more is on the grid. And things like uh, payments for curtailment or demand response or storage or um, or sort of high voltage transmission grids spanning the continent can help mitigate those problems. But I haven't been convinced that they overcome those problems. So wherever we are now, whether it's lacking the advanced nuclear reactors that we think we need, or whether it's lacking the advanced solar panels that uh, that that might be developed past the, the the silicon photovoltaic models that we have today, or whether it's lacking the energy storage technologies, particularly the sort of seasonal scale energy storage technologies that could really be a game changer for intermittent renewables. We do not have all the technologies we need. We'll, we'll deploy the ones we have today, whatever today means, um, and try to develop better ones in the future. But um, I don't think that we should shy away from the technologies of the future simply because they're not available today. I don't think that's how technological innovation and development has ever worked. And so so ultimately, I, I think that we'll, we'll continue to deploy solar and wind to 
I do believe some sort of saturation point uh, for for most countries and in most circumstances. I think we'll over a similar time period develop and start deploying and commercializing advanced nuclear. And I think by mid century we'll be deploying and relying on technologies, nuclear and solar and storage that look nothing like the light water, silicon PV, lithium ion technologies that we rely on today. And that's great. So let's turn to energy intensity now, which is, you know, directly related to this nuclear conversation, if we're thinking about a high energy planet. And um, breakthrough stance is different than what a lot of people have been advocating for. You know, I, I grew up learning how to live my life using less, you know, it's firmly ingrained in my mind that I should be using less to benefit the environment. I'm thinking about how to make sure my home is using less energy, how to make sure that my travel is moderated so that I'm using less energy. And this is just the way that I was taught. And it's what guides, I think, our general way of thinking about about energy. I mean, the the interesting thing is that the Breakthrough Institute doesn't see energy intensity as this boogeyman. In fact, you think greater use of energy potentially is a, a boon for the environment. It seems very counterintuitive given our current framework. So maybe you could explain that. Yeah, so I could go on and on about efficiency and conservation and using less. The first of which is to say that where efficiency and conservation and, and using less makes sense, we should, if we're, if a form of energy consumption is inefficient, we should make it more efficient. And particularly in the developed world and places like the residential sector, there's all sorts of opportunities for that. And that's why we see electricity demand in the United States and aggregate saturating and, and looking like it's start to de- starting to decline, even, even with economic growth in the United States over, over the last decade or so. That is a positive trend. As as the economy moves from agriculture to manufacturing, increasingly to services and knowledge, then we extract more wealth and productivity out of less energy-intensive services. And that's great. And it means that in, in aggregate, energy consumption will probably peak and fall over time as, as countries develop. A lot of countries have yet to go through that curve. And so we can expect globally energy consumption to go up for a long time. That said, in not all instances is more energy consumption or more energy intensity a villain. Um, you, if you can think about things like vertical farming, where we could grow leafy greens in tall vertical greenhouses that might use a lot more electricity than growing them in plots of land outside, but would use a lot less water, land, fertilizer, pesticide, and reduce those environmental challenges in, in effect, substituting energy for other types of environmental damage. You can think of things like vaporizing our solid waste um, through plasma torches, which would require a lot more energy, but it would also, you know, obviate the need for throwing stuff into landfills and, you know, dumping plastic into the ocean. You can think of, like, building huge machines that suck carbon out of the atmosphere and and, re- and reduce the the global warming and, and climate risks that come with that, but would require a lot of energy to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and store it somewhere. So, you know, these are all situations where we can imagine using a lot more energy, but it being worth it in, for, for whatever the goal is. And, and often those goals will be environmental and those trade-offs will very often be worth it, especially if that energy is low carbon. So to the greater the greater degree that we have solar and wind and nuclear on the grid, then the more able we are 
to think about a high energy future where we can both sort of power the the world as we think of it today and power all sorts of new applications that could make our lives and our environment even better. I I would be remiss if I didn't mention the experience of Germany. And I'm sure that I'm going to get some German listeners or folks in the U.S. who are fans of the German energy transition who are going to be highly critical of this framing. But we can now look at, you know, almost two decades of promotion of renewable energy in Germany, this very aggressive, forward-thinking approach to using renewables to lower carbon emissions. And of course, Germany uh, has pushed to phase out nuclear as well. And there's been a lot of really important benefits in Germany. Um, They had one of the fastest growing localized solar industries. They were a wind pioneer. They, you know, were one of the first countries to develop the the modern wind turbines that we know today. They've been um, really progressive in promoting community energy and providing all these localized benefits to renewables. And so I would argue that they've really done a good job of capturing the associated economic benefits of renewables while, quite frankly, keeping an industrialized country going and powering Europe through a very difficult time. Um, But with that said, we can look at experience now and see that their carbon emissions have stayed stubborn. Uh, They have gone up and down in over the years, they've increased their burning of coal. Um, the, you know, just focusing on renewables as a carbon emission strategy hasn't seemed to work. And I think a lot of folks have looked at the experience in Germany and said, see, look, these are the limits of, of renewables. I'm curious to get your take, Alex, because um, Breakthrough was an early critic of the German energy transition. And a lot of people were like, well, let's wait. Let's let's wait and see what happens. And now I think we have enough experience to see what happened. And we haven't seen dramatic reductions in carbon emissions in the country. And of course, we do see pretty high energy prices as well. What is your take on where things stand with the German energy transition and their phase out of nuclear and their increase in coal burning? Because it's it's a really messy scenario. Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. We as a global community have Germany, among them China, Korea, the United States, to thank for the huge public investments in wind and solar that have been made over the past couple of decades. It's been in the tens of billions of dollars, but we have also achieved radical cost reductions in, in wind and solar. As, I, as you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that even with those cost reductions, wind and solar will power the planet, but they will make a substantial contribution to decarbonization this century. It costs a lot of money, but I think especially as you measure the benefits over the next century or so, it will have been worth it. That said, Breakthrough gets accused of sort of nuclear renewable tribalism a lot, pitting nuclear and renewables against each other. I think sometimes more fairly than others, but sure. I'm not sure that there is an organization or a person or a country that has done more to create nuclear renewable tribalism than Germany, which has literally codified it in law. They have a on-law phase-out of nuclear power in their country, allegedly to be effectuated by 2022. They have a now multi-decade-old policy of subsidizing solar and wind to replace nuclear energy. And when people like us at the Breakthrough Institute talk about how we can imagine a future that includes both nuclear and renewables. 
it is very often big fans of the energy vendee or the the German energy transition that respond, no, n- nuclear and renewables can never get along. Nuclear is in- inflexible. You can't build the plants. Wind and solar can be built anywhere on rooftops and hillsides. And they're the future. Nuclear is the past. So I, I would accept the criticism of myself, of the Breakthrough Institute, of at times over the last 10 years or so of pitting renewables and nuclear against each other. Uh, but that sort of enmity and tribalism predates us and I think is actually sort of very often stronger on the other side. And I think that the the there are, so, there are reasons why Germany and the German people did it that way. And that's fine. It's their country. They can burn more coal and shut down their nuclear plants if they want to. I'd, I'd prefer they be honest about it. The, the more disappointing thing is sort of climate hawks and environmentalists, particularly in the United States, who sort of speak out of one side of their mouth and talk about the German energy transition as this revolution and clean energy without recognizing that if it's a revolution in clean energy and decarbonization, then it's not actually decarbonizing anything. And that's a problem. And I, I think it it contributes to this sort of symbolic type of debate that we have in environmentalism. And it certainly contributes to the renewable nuclear tribalism that makes it really hard to have productive disagreement, find productive agreement, and imagine how our multiple views of the future can coexist. Right. That's what's been a wake-up call for me, because there are extraordinary benefits to Germany's investments in renewables and the german people highly support it so good for them but we now have a lot of experience and we can see that as a climate strategy it really hasn't worked and that we're going to start to you know it's a microcosm for a lot of other policies that are being put in place and so it really is frustrating to see a number of climate advocates who continue to to focus on germany as the example of what climate policy should be. And I don't exactly know what good climate policy should be, but I do know that we haven't seen Germany as a leader in carbon reductions. Um, we certainly see them as an economic leader in development of renewables. So again, that's that's great. But I think it's important to draw a distinction between the two. And now that we can look and see what Germany's track record is, um, I think it's important for climate hawks to move away from that example and to start thinking about, okay, well, if Germany isn't seeing these dramatic reductions like we were claiming were going to happen, uh, what what should we do next? Um, the answers aren't easy, but it's been a wake-up call for me to see that experience play out. And now here we are. Yeah, and, you know, it's it happens everywhere, and it, it's, it's difficult uh, to move past, but people looking at a success story and extrapolating that success towards sort of total revolutionary success. So Germany in solar, for instance, has been tremendously helpful to humanity. They were, they were, they had an industrial policy that has helped deploy and drive down the cost of photovoltaic solar over the last couple of decades. And it would be enough to be happy about that without also arguing that they have been a climate leader or that they are on the road to deep decarbonization because neither of that is true. So similarly, you can look at something like uh, deploying nuclear power in France in the 1970s and think like, look, this is the deep decarbonization strategy that we should all rely on. They went from like 
15 to 80% nuclear in less than two decades. Let's just do that. When in fact, that was a a, a sort of industrial policy strategy that was successful given France's politics and given France's economic situation at the time, but that will not always be the answer. Um, and, and so I, I think th- that we need to be sort of more open-minded about both the technologies and the policies and the combinations of those things that can together create deep decarbonization in the next several decades without sort of falling back on our favorite examples of it that sort of very rarely have universal application. How has your approach to engaging with people evolved over time? Um, it's it's an interesting question, too, because we're at a moment where tensions on social media have um, gotten, have increased, and that this is largely where a lot of these debates play out. How has your approach to this space changed? I think working at the Breakthrough Institute, we are encouraged to question our own assumptions and, and the assumptions of our sort of ideological opponents or folks that we are engaged in debate with. And for me, my, my shift on social media, in conversations, and when I've been speaking, has been to not, um, not focus less on... W- the disagreement itself, but to focus less on why someone besides me is wrong. I I think that actually focusing on disagreement is where the interesting conversations happen, but it needs to, it needs to be done from a place of good faith, a place of honesty. um, And, and, you know, certainly sort of a level of clear headedness and just basic politeness that I might not have given as much thought to a few years ago, in which case a disagreement might have led more to me just shouting, you're wrong, here's why you're wrong, stop being dumb. Instead of now, where if I come across an idea or a person who is who I, I think is off the mark, um, I'm sure I fail at this plenty, but my hope and my goal is to is to try and engage honestly with that disagreement, to talk about it, um, to sort of make obvious my own assumptions and my own values and to actually have a conversation. Uh, I think that that has been uh, effective for me, for the Breakthrough Institute. I, th- I think it actually in this sort of social media space is better for all of us because if I'm having these debates in public on Twitter or whatever, people see that. That's sort of part of the whole point of engaging on social media is to have interesting conversations that other people can observe and then participate in. And I think those kinds of conversations, honest, interesting ones about different ways that we see and approach the world are the, are the ones that will actually, even as they don't extinguish disagreement, they will lead us down a more productive path than the type of, I don't know, shouting or maybe sometimes disrespectful tack that I have taken in the past. Yeah, uh, I think I've evolved because I, my, my, I've wrapped my head around the complexity of actually dealing with climate change on a macroeconomic scale. And when you do that, you really have to kind of open yourself up to all sorts of different possibilities. Um, and, <laughs> you know, as soon as I pulled myself out of day-to-day politics and 
kind of what felt good and what was winning at the time and really allowed myself to engage with a broad range of ideas and then actually look at the experience of different countries, say, you know, going back to the German example, it enabled me to get out of, you know, whatever stance that I may have hardened at the time. And, um, and now I'm, I take a completely opposite approach, an approach that quite frankly may annoy some people. Um, and I think the developments in renewables have been extraordinary. I think energy efficiency is an extremely powerful tool, but I don't think that we've, we've figured this out at all. And so, you know, opening myself up to as many possibilities, no matter how harebrained potentially, or how economically implausible at the moment is probably necessary for us to truly start grappling with, with the challenge that's sitting right here in front of us. But I think, you know, there's a lot of change in the debate broadly too, because now that we have more technological solutions, now that this conversation has matured a bit. And now that the emergency that we're facing seems to have gotten greater, it seems like more agreement has materialized, or at least a lot of people who may have hunkered down into one particular position are taking that more open-minded approach. One example being, I think a lot of uh, traditional environmental writers have started calling for more nuclear power. Or a lot of you know political writers have started talking about the crazy trade-offs that we're going to need to make within the environmental movement, or you know for pro- progressives who've traditionally been pushing climate action, the trade-offs that they're going to need to make to actually deal with the problem. So I think that there's a lot of maturity here. Yeah, and despite the very disappointing progress that we have made as a planet on emissions trajectories in the in the last 10 15 years i see the same sort of rhetorical and and ideological and attitude progress um uh, uh, both a more openness to different perspectives and different possibilities and and different conceptions of the future but also a uh, a, a greater eagerness to uh to talk about those differences um, and to sort of shrug off the, the, the tribalism that we were shackled with uh, to some degree for, for so long. But most of all, to really embrace a technological vision of the future that you, we didn't see 15, 20 years ago. Um, and we don't realize it because it's been, a, it's, it's been a while now. But as we were talking about at the top of the show, whether it's solar panels or wind turbines or electric vehicles, or now next generation nuclear reactors, there is a vibrant conversation about what our technological solution to climate change is going to be. That was not the case 15 years ago. And that, despite the fact that emissions are still climbing, is progress. Alex Trumbeth is communications director at the Breakthrough Institute. He joined us from their offices in Oakland, California. Alex, I enjoyed this immensely. It's been a long time coming. Thanks for coming on the show. This was fantastic, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Shale. That's it, folks. Uh, Thanks again to Alex Trumbeth for joining us. Um, I know we're bound to get a lot of commentary from this one, so I'd love to hear what you think. Shout us out on Twitter. Feel free to kind of deliberate on what we talked about um, see if you can do it in a nice way. Let's let's start something different here on Twitter. Let's make the user experience and the debates that much more enjoyable. You know, you can also comment to us directly through email. Um, 
podcast at greentechmedia.com or just shoot us a comment on the comment page below the show notes. Speaking of the show notes, we'll have links to Breakthrough's Eco-Modernist Manifesto and some of its other recent work. So you can dig through that if you want to learn more. And of course, you can uh, find us anywhere you get your podcasts and do us a favor, rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or just shoot a link over to your colleagues or your friends or your family. You know, the energy transition is becoming more prominent. More people are getting into it and they want to understand what's going on with all this stuff. How are we going to combat climate change? How are we going to you know, deal with these complexities? How are we going to get beyond fossil fuels? And we're trying to grapple with that stuff, the real difficult stuff um, within that context. And so if people, if, if there's someone that, that you know who, who also would be interested in that, please send them a link to this show. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we really appreciate your support. I'm Stephen Lacey with uh, my co-host Shale Khan, and this is the Interchange Conversations on the Global Energy Transformation from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.